What is up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time, a production by Arnold Porter's Telecom Media and Technology Industry Group, of which I'm co-chair and I'm your host of TMT Time, Evan Rothstein. And today we're going to hit the M, the middle of TMT Time, bringing in another reporter, this time a freelance journalist, knee of CNN, and I'm talking about Chris Moody. Chris, welcome into the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. We are going to talk about your uh, trials and travails on the road as a freelance reporter, Chris. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? So I was a uh, political reporter for a long time, in mostly in Washington, D.C. I covered campaigns and Congress, chased politicians all around the country, interviewed presidential candidates, watched them rise and fall, and had a generally uh, exhausting and great time <laughs> while doing it. Um, uh, and, uh, and so lived in DC, then lived in New York for a while. Um, but then in 2018, uh, so obviously before the pandemic, um, I left those big cities and my wife and I built a solar powered tiny house in the back of a used cargo van and used it to live in, uh, gave away or sold almost all of our possessions, uh, and gave up the apartment and lived in 72 square feet with my wife traveling around the country. The short of it was basically looking for how people are trying to reinvent the so-called American dream. I looked around at a lot of my friends in corporate world and, and kind of realized that while they were incredibly successful and had done everything right their whole lives, they seemed pretty unhappy and unfulfilled. And this was especially, um, I think, especially high in, in rates of community, people feeling isolated, um, even as prosperity was increasing, rates of depression were going up, uh, uh, particularly among young people that felt increasingly isolated. And so we wanted to use this van trip to try to find communities of people that were taking, well, community very seriously and see what we could learn from them. And so we traveled over about two years, around 50,000 miles um, living rent-free across the U.S. with very few possessions and embedding with different kinds of people, just trying different ways of, of living, many of them shrugging off kind of the traditional American dream of accumulating stuff and trying to just, you know, work your way up a ladder um, and, and, and focusing on other things. And uh, we eventually have settled, um, at, you know, obviously after the Chattanooga, or excuse me, after the uh, pandemic shakeup, we settled in Chattanooga, Tennessee, after it was all said and done. Um, and uh, looks like we are, are going to stay in Tennessee for now. But that is the that is the short version of a two-year, 50,000-mile van trip where a husband and wife lived in 72 square feet together. In a yeah, house yeah my first question was going to be, is she still your wife? Because 72 square feet, very close quarters. It's, she still is uh, very much my wife. And um, it was, frankly, it was her idea, the whole thing. We, we had been talking about this idea for a long time. Like, how do we tell these stories about these people around the country um, without the backing of a major media outlet? You can't, you know, fly around all the time, jet setting, staying in Airbnbs. But what if we just built our own house? And this was kind of as the so-called van life trend was really heating up. And so there's a lot of resources that was that encouraged us that basically said you could do this on your own you don't have to build you don't have to buy a $150,000 van like you see out on the road with the super rigs you could just build an old cargo van and build something very nice that you could live in yourself 
Um, I have very little um, handy skills, um, uh, so I learned a lot. It was a steep learning curve, but uh, we we did it. And um, you know, you learn a lot about relationships when you're on the road with somebody in such close quarters. Obviously, there's no other room to escape to. There's no door to slam. You know, if you get in an argument, where so, where do you go for alone time? You just go outside. You kind of have an invisible barrier where you're just like, okay, now I'm on this side of the 72 square feet in my own little world, but there's nowhere to go. Maybe you can take a walk in the woods or something like that. But, and we stayed. So one thing we did with the van, if I can give a picture, if anyone wants to see it, you can go on Instagram. There's old photos. It's um, life opted out is the name of the Instagram. You can follow the trip from a couple of years ago and see how we built it and everything. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, so it, did you like blog it or write about it the whole time? So, so, so we, we took a couple photos for Instagram to share um, along the way. One thing I also found is um, the nomadic social media sphere is the most encouraging and positive place on the entire internet. I had spent 10 years in political politics, Twitter, the most vile and unseemly place you could ever spend your time and was convinced that um, everyone on the internet was just absolutely awful. However, uh, this community is very encouraging and, and helpful. Uh, so we, we kind of use that to, to connect with people. Um, and then I, I've written some uh, magazine pieces along the way uh, about uh, different um, trends and, and narratives that we met along the way. But we, we built this van. Uh, it, it's, it looks like a, a white cargo van. It just is very non-discreet. Uh, um, or it's very discreet and it, uh, it, it was meant to be stealthy. We built it so that we could park anywhere from if we wanted to go into a national forest or if we wanted to park along the side of the road or in the uh, parking lot of a Cracker Barrel where we stayed many nights. Um, you could just stay for free. We were only busted by police uh, one time in a town in Oregon where they filmed the movie The Goonies and uh, we should have known better, but it was kind of a... Uh, a uh, touristy kind of spot where I've actually been there. Okay, my it's wife's beautiful. From Oregon, so I've been there. Yeah, that's cool. Well, they don't take kindly to dirty kids sleeping in their <laughs> vans, and so a police officer knocked on the door in the middle of the night and uh, was very nice. And he just said, "You got to stay in an RV park. You can't stay here." And then he's like, "You did a nice job building your van. Now get out of here." You know, <laughs> so. Uh, but that was the only uh, encounter we had of any any kind of danger because you know a lot of people ask. Um, when you're sleeping in your van around the country, um, are you worried? Are you nervous? Are you scared? And it's like, no, man, like the guy sleeping in his van is the danger. I'm the danger here. Like no one's going to mess with the guy living in his van. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, there was, uh, there was no problems. So, so did you write like regularly? Like, so, cause I, what I want to get into you with you a little bit is you were on the inside, so to speak of the media, which, you know, sort of controls the message. And now you're on the outside writing, you know, as a freelance journalist, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it was like to unplug from big media uh, and how you handle it and what you, what your take on big media is now that you're outside on the other side, if you will. Yeah, I uh, have to first of all say how plugged in I was to big media. Um, and that is kind of the the IV drop of a Twitter feed of, of politics news 24-7 with brief sleeping in between and eating, um, but constant consumption of news and media in a way that's not healthy. Certainly when I lived in Washington, um, if somebody asked me, you know, what kind of hobbies do you have outside of work? If I said anything other than work, I would have been lying. You know, I might have said, well, I enjoy the idea of hiking and doing things. 
but in Washington, all I was doing was work or um, going out to, you know, different happy hours for work and different networking events for work. And that was all I, all I ever did. Um, and then we moved into this position of having no Wi-Fi. Um, we had phones that we could use, but it had limited bandwidth, of course. Uh, and just uh, a few books, you know, um, and, and just completely opting out of all of that noise. I spent months, I mean, literally months and months at a time, um, never looking at the news, like intentionally not reading the news. Um, Cause I just kind of decided like, you know, there was an election coming up and I thought, well, at the end of the day, over the next six months, I can spend hours and hours reading about these campaigns and elections, or I can just let somebody tell me who took the house and who took the Senate. And that's all I need to know is who won. And that'll take five seconds. And so long stretches of time, just completely abstaining from any news consumption, uh, which completely clears your head for all kinds of yeah, larger pursuits. Yeah, was it liberating? Did you, was, did you go through with the draw? Because I mean, there's a lot of articles out there about the dopamine rush that all of us get when we're you know constantly refreshing our email or checking Twitter, or checking right. LinkedIn or whatever. Yeah. Did you go I, through like a period where it was like, uh, I need it, I need it, I need it, and then you broke through? I think, yes, then you reach a point where you're like, no, I'm, I'm just not going to do this anymore. And you stop. And I became one of those people you, you've read about, like profiles of people that just, they do not watch the news. Of course, that became very difficult when the pandemic rolled around and it was actually, you know, in your interest to keep an eye on things. And then, of course, I was sucked right back into it. Um, but it, it did teach me that, you know, you don't have to have that IV drip of news coming at all times. And in fact, I think that's counterproductive to living a good life, generally speaking. You know, you, know, you got to remember there was a time when maybe you got the morning paper and then tuned in for 30 minutes at the six o'clock news. And that was kind of your news consumption for the entire day. You weren't swimming in it and stewing in it. it didn't affect your moods. You weren't following every single update. And as a person who's in the news business, it was my job to follow uh, every update. So I kind of took the extreme other end of um, the spectrum and just stayed out of it entirely. Didn't even mess with it at all. And it made time for some of the greatest reading months, you know, of my life. Well, what impact did it have? Because obviously, you were, as you were driving around, you were, I'm sure you were interacting with locals in the individual communities that we were going to. How did it impact your ability to uh, interact and communicate with those that you were, you were so, meeting with? That's a really good question, because when I was a reporter, I was sent out in, you know, I was, I was in these cities in DC, I was in New York, these elite Eastern coastal cities, right? Um, and I was sent out into the country to, you know, talk to real Americans was the idea. But what it came down to so often was not necessarily telling their stories, but just getting right to the point. What do you think of Donald Trump? Or what do you think of Republicans? What do you think of Democrats? And completely just not listening to the more important parts of their story and just trying to get the news headline about where these people stood. And, and I found that on this trip, I didn't have to have any necessarily an agenda. I didn't have to have something to come back with. I could just let people speak. And it is incredible, let me tell you, when you just ask someone a question about their life, listen to them, look at them while they're talking. And then instead of responding by saying, well, that reminds me of the time I did something even more cool than you'll ever do or something. You know how people do that. They say, oh, one time I did something better. What are you talking uh, about? I'm a, I'm a lawyer. We are the kings and queens of the one-upping. That's right, right. So instead of ever doing that, just 
asking follow-up questions such as, and then what happened? <laughs> and you will be amazed what people will tell you about their life. And they will pour out the most incredible stories of joy and sorrow and heartbreak and loss and also triumph throughout their life. And I, I think people are really hungry to be listened to. I don't feel as though people feel heard very much. Um, they may be speaking, but very few people may have listened to them. Maybe no one has ever listened. As a reporter, you know, you're supposed to be kind of a professional listener. Um, and this gave me an opportunity to really practice that and to, instead of telling my own story to a lot of people, just sit quietly and, and let them tell theirs. And that was very liberating. And I, and I think um, it can be difficult to, if you live in a lot of like an expensive coastal city in kind of elitist kind of hubs, you, um, you lose perspective very easily of how most people are living their lives. First of all, um, in two years, uh, gosh, just about nobody mentioned politics in a conversation because polite people don't bring it up. Um, whereas as a reporter, I'd have to be like, okay, that's great, that thing that happened to you, but what do you think of Donald Trump, right? If you don't bring it up, I was shocked at how no one else would bring it up. And they would talk about the things that they really cared about, their families, their lives, their adventures, their going on, things they wanted to do. Um, and then another thing a lot of people told me too was, you know, they'd hear about our van trip and they'd say, oh, I would love to live like that. And it's an interesting thing to say because yes, they would, but there's an immense amount of trade-offs when you live like this, when it comes to just, I mean, something as basic as comforts of life. You know, we don't have showers. We would shower at, um, at gyms around the country um, or not knowing where you're necessarily going to sleep every night. You do have the freedom to travel all over the country but you give up quite a lot too. And, uh, and I think a lot of people have the dream of wanting to do something like this, but they might not be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to do it. And so it takes a, a level of flexibility. One thing I would say to somebody whenever they'd say, oh, I'd love to live in a van like you guys, I'd say, oh, do you like camping? And they say, no, I hate camping. It's like, well, this is always camping. <laughs> this is camping is all you ever do. Uh, and so it was essentially like a two year camping trip. And, and that's something a lot of people don't necessarily factor in. We didn't have climate control necessarily in the back of the van. Uh, we had a fan and a window, but no air conditioning, no heat. So when it got cold, we went down. And when it got hot, we went up essentially. And, and we made geography our climate control. So all kinds of like little tricks of living in different ways, living seasonally around the country, and then trying to find pockets of community um, where you can get it. That's something that I found that I missed most, um, missed the most was consistent community. Those kinds of friends that you just see on a Wednesday at the bar and you just perpetually are living life with them. And, and you don't get that necessarily when you're on the road, you get it in small bursts, but then everybody drives away at the end. How often did you like stay for a long period of time and put in stops? Were you, were you like popping in and out? Were you like setting roots down for a week or two? Like, how did you embed yourself locally in the communities? It depended on the, on the place. And also like if there was a spot you could actually stay for a long period of time, because nobody wants a white van parked in front of their house for more than a few hours. Right. You, you know, and if you were uh, staying, I, I don't <laughs> I see a van in front of my house. My kids are like, daddy, there's a kidnapper van out front. Exactly. Like, there is. And then you call, you know, the yeah. local whomever. Uh, so we moved around a lot because we didn't want to stay in the same place. Now when, when we were in the woods, we would maybe park for a week or two sometimes um, load up on the food and water to make sure we could be, you know, and we had solar panels. So we had all the energy that we needed. Um, and we could stay probably about two weeks at a time uh, with the water containers that we had. 
but then we would always have to go find resources um, eventually. We had a refrigerator as well, so we could refrigerate food. Um, but uh, yeah, we we were we were really on the move. I mean, we basically did two full laps around the country, um, starting in Florida, ending up uh, far away in the the um, the Rockies of Canada down to San Diego and then across the deserts and the plains of the, of the US. And then we kind of did it a different route again. So um, when you travel like that, like you're, you're really booking it. Now you were a political reporter. Did you talk to folks about political stuff? Like what were you hoping to learn from them? I was completely open. I, well, I wanted to know, like there was kind of, okay. So there's two ways I approached it. One was like people that I wanted to interview with great intention. Um, say young couples that had saved up money throughout their entire twenties by living really frugally and essentially retire in their thirties uh, where they don't have to work. And I asked them a lot of like, you know, interview questions and things like that, or people that had build their, would build their homes out of completely recycled materials or just interesting folks like that, that I would use in a magazine piece or something. But then there was just like normal folks that I, I would meet and just start asking them a lot of questions about their life and letting them talk. Um, and that's kind of what I talked about a little bit earlier, where I could finally have the breathing room to listen to people and they didn't bring up politics and um, they, it just, it, it was not necessarily in the forefront of their minds. Now that might change when you get closer to an election season. And certainly as we got into, into COVID, I think there's more pressing things where people are really thinking about the news a lot. Um, but when given the chance, folks uh, don't talk about it that much. It's Were really, there really themes? Like, did you, like, I'm one of the things that really interests me about sort of like, areas and, and communities around the country is like opioids um, mm -hmm. because there's obviously opioid epidemic and you read about it a lot, but you don't actually see it um, all the time. Did you see that? Like, was that, was there a different theme that came across? Were there regional themes? I, I would love to hear like, if you were able to like spot things as you were going around. I think uh, when you talk to people and you let them talk, um, they, you find kind of how it can be very difficult to live in the United States. People are not necessarily at ease. Uh, they are constantly working a lot and working very hard. And you hear a lot of just kind of like people worn down and, and just kind of worn out with all of it. And I think COVID-19 really brought a lot of that bubbling to the surface if it was underneath before and exposed a lot of the cracks that we live with here in the United States where essentially most people are on the hook for everything, whether it's their healthcare, their pension through their 401k, all kinds of things. It's all comes down to the individual. And as the breakdown of community has occurred, Heard over the past couple of years, if, if you read, you know, even the book Bowling Alone, which was published, I believe, 20 years ago, um, you, you realize that these civic, civil society institutions have broken down and people are really on their own. And then you have the breakdown of families and then they're just like completely uh, individuals. And that's where you get a lot of folks that are just, not just lonely, but just, you know, can't shoulder the burden of life on their own. And, and that was something I was really looking for is, is communities where people were trying to band together and boost each other up. Um, and people are doing it. And there's some great work that's being done to explore those communities as well. Um, but uh, I was struck by 
how difficult it is to make it in America. And I think you can grow up being propagandized by the American dream and that everybody's got a shot and they're going to do great. And um, there are some great discrepancies, depending on who you're talking to, about how that works out for people. Do you think that the media has a role in that, the big media that it used to be part of? I think media struggle with talking about the news from a diverse uh, number of perspectives. Much of the report reporting that you get in the news is from kind of a well-to-do, often northeastern, um, highly educated person becomes a journalist. Because to, oftentimes to get into an elite newsroom, you have to do a few years of free internships, which many times that weeds out people of lower means that can't work for free for a couple of years, or they have to get a very expensive education. Um, and then those people hire the people that came from their colleges, and you have this perpetuating cycle of just one type of person telling the news. And the amount of diversity, at least in the elite newsrooms of economic diversity, there's a lot of talk of, of racial diversity, which there's been incredible work just in the past two years of making sure there's more racial diversity in newsrooms, which has been really good. But there's also socioeconomic diversity that's lacking. Um, people don't necessarily understand um, people that are making it in a blue collar industry, you know, um, and, and where they're coming from and how they're living because they never had to live like that. Or they, maybe they grew up like that, but it's been so many years that they just have no idea. Uh, and, and also just geographic diversity. Everybody's clustered in New York City, in Washington or in LA. And you need, I think, a healthy newsroom, especially in this, in this new era of Zoom, is your reporters should be able to live, unless you're covering Capitol Hill or whatever, your reporters should be able to live all over the country. They should be able to live in Texas and North Dakota and, you know, wherever. You hear a lot of newsrooms that are saying they're really interested in increasing geographic diversity, and some have. Um, but I think there's a lot more work to be done, and I think you'll find much better reporting, especially get, you know, one thing that local reporters at, at you know, local papers will complain about is parachute reporting, where somebody comes in um, and then just completely gets things wrong about a community. And it's important to have people living in those communities to, to help you out. So I, I, I think newsrooms have a long way to go in, in increasing that. And I say that as somebody who lived in the elite, you know, in these cities, and now lives in Southeast Tennessee, which for me has been such a blessing um, and uh, has increased, I think, the quality of my, my writing and my understanding of, of different types of people. Because I live not just among highly educated liberals, like you might in DC or New York, but um, my neighbors come from a range of political backgrounds, a range of economic backgrounds. And I have a lot of friends that are Democrats and Republicans. And I'm always baffled when I hear reporters say things like, well, I don't know anybody who voted for Trump, or I wouldn't be friends with anybody who was a Republican or a, a Democrat or whatever. Like, that's just the most, as a writer, like to have lived that kind of one dimensional life will make you a bad writer. And I think it's important to surround yourself with people that you don't understand. And in time you will. The local voice of like, you know, local news stations or local newspapers is almost gone. It's basically been snuffed out. All the big newspapers have been bought up by syndicates or conglomerates all over the place. And you're no longer getting that local flavor that you're talking about. Chattanooga, where I've Whitewater River raft a couple of times. Um, it's a nice the area. Okoe. Yeah, on the Okoe, yeah, which actually I think the 96 Olympic race course was on the Okoe River. Um, but uh, in any event, you know, what you're talking about is sort of you're getting the national coastal 
take on everything and that's what's you know shoved down our throats on twitter and all the big big websites and people are losing that sort of local flavor because they're constantly inundated with information all day long and you know there aren't a lot of you freelancers still out there that are telling every person's stories yeah twitter has been a real problem i think uh on one hand it has it is a an important tool to you know, hear what's going on in real time. It, it's the fastest way to get information, um, but it narrows your scope of, of how you see things and understand things. And you start to think that what you are reading on Twitter is what everyone actually is thinking. And it's not, it's just what the certain people who have opted in are thinking um, and are probably living unhealthy lives as far as their media diet goes, essentially. And um, I think every reporter should, you know, take... Twitter sabbaticals and see how it has an um, effect on their on their writing, um, if not for a month forever. <laughs> um, but like I I hang on to that uh, myself just because it puts me back in the slipstream of like if I wrote something I can have other reporters see it. Um, but sometimes if you're so stuck in Twitter you start to write just for the other reporters who live on Twitter too, and. Uh, there's a word for when for that <laughs> you know and and that's not what the media should be the media should not be for each other it should obviously be a public service for a um, diverse range of people that represent this country and you're not going to do that if you're writing for just other unhappy people on twitter that that's the echo chamber that actually happens on any teams where everybody is non-diverse and similar backgrounds similar upbringings and nobody's thinking outside the box that's what happens um, and, happens and, in the and law too. There's danger to the thinking outside the box because the people in in that community will then you know cast you out. Um, now, of course, there's all kinds of misinformation. There's people saying things that are completely false and wrong. Um, but it can be very difficult to have a contrarian kind of voice. I know people have made their living on being contrarians, and it can be annoying. Um, but uh, I think there should be more room for. Uh, for thought, uh, the what's it called? Epistemic closure. When everybody's just thinking the same thing, uh, it gets old. And I think that's that's the reason why a lot of people have decided they're not going to get their news from mainstream outlets anymore. Even though those places work so hard to vet their information and make sure it's right and do extraordinary work, um, you know, you look at the top, you know, outlets on Facebook are almost exclusively so-called alternative media outlets. They're not the the big five or ten you might think of. I read a lot of Substack and I like a lot of the reporters or writers that are, are having their own Substack pages just because they're, it's like unfiltered. Um, and it's not, I don't know, alleged fake news, but it's just straight from the reporters or writers mouths. And I, I really gotten into it. Substack has been important because it's not only provided an outlet, but also provided an economic means yeah. to support that stuff, which right. man, that's, that's the tricky part, especially as everything has gone digital you know, you got to remember like newspaper, the height of newspaper income was like the mid 2000s. It wasn't that long ago that they were making so much money. And then it just all fell apart with the, the digital revolution. All these newspapers started to give away their content for free. And they were told that the ad dollars because of all those eyeballs would amount to money. It did not. Then you see all of the layoffs and all kinds of the ups and downs. When I first got into my first newsroom, I was just the guy who answered the phones at the front of the desk or at the front of the front of the newsroom. And I, this is always a reporter that would come by and he's like, 
you should get out while you still can. This is a, a, a sinking ship, <laughs> uh, but I've stuck with it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's been a difficult time for the journalism industry trying to figure out how to make money. And it's been amazing to watch Substack uh, in you know provide a living wage for a lot of reporters and in some make them very, very wealthy, which has been fascinating to see. So why Chattanooga? And why did you finally settle down? Did the, was it the pandemic and you just needed to find an area to set up shop or what? So we actually, we had returned to New York City after the van trip, what we thought was completed. Uh, and we moved there right at the same time as COVID came in. Now we didn't know it was COVID back then. This is December, 2019. But then COVID shut everything down by what, March or April or so. And we were in an apartment, you know, in June, until June, 2020. But we still had the van. And it represented our uh, a kind of a gay patch. And so we were able to find somebody to take away our, our take off our lease. And we got back in the van and just lived in the woods for the summer of 2020, self-isolating um, in that van um, in, in just rural parts of the of the Northeast and then made our way steadily south. And we have some family that lives in, in Chattanooga. So we thought, well, during this pandemic time, it'd be nice to be around some family, at least have a pod of people we can spend time with. And we ended up here and it turns out to be one of the most beautiful, dynamic, and interesting places. Um, I, I find just the geographic, the South in America to be one of the best places to be a writer right now, um, because the South for a long time now has been redefining itself and changing and morphing. It's a place where the most amount of newcomers are moving. Um, that was accelerated with COVID and an incredible amount of diversity uh, here especially in Atlanta, where you see an, an, a very high increase of Black families moving back to the South, settling in Atlanta. Um, and, and so it creates this dynamic, exciting, unexpected place to live where there are so many, so many cultures just kind of running into each other that I, I can't imagine now being a reporter in another part of the country. Like, I think this is, this is great. And Chattanooga is right in the center of it all. It gives me an easy drive to just about anywhere in the South. So final question is going to run out of time here, Chris. How do you get, when you write a piece or you start to write a piece, how do you get traction to get it published or picked up? What it, how does that work? Yeah, so um, it starts with a pitch. You have to know what you want to say and have an idea of what the piece will say. Sometimes you haven't done the reporting, but you can have an idea, right? Um, and then I start to think of who, what kind of publication would this idea run in well? Um, you know, what has there been a publication that would be open to this that would like, you know, be open to the my perspective on this? And have they not done anything about this topic recently? And so I kind of make a list of, of publications and then I got to have then I have to find the editors that would be responsible for accepting or denying it. I track them down and then I craft a pitch, which is just a, an email that is maybe three to five paragraphs long, very tight as much as possible. Here's the idea. Here's why this is the publication that it should run in. Here's why I'm the person to write it. Um, and then you send it off and hope for the best. And um, sometimes they take it, sometimes they don't. And then you go on to the second best or the, your, your second choice of a publication and, and you keep pitching and pitching. Um, and over time, you develop relationships with editors to get consistent work like that. And um, what's, what's been really neat about being a freelancer is it's allowed me to write for a lot of the publications I've really enjoyed reading for many, many years. And, and so um, that, uh, you know, I, I always work for one company at a time, and, and this allows me to really diversify the amount of places that I, I get to write, and I always try to find the, the best place uh, that might take it. Of course, everyone always wants to be published in the New York Times all the time, but um, sometimes there's uh, other publications to, to pitch your ideas to, and, and, that's, and that's how it's done, and um, it, you just get the ball rolling, and 
um, you know, sometimes you need a side gig to back it up, but uh, if you can make it, it's a, it's a very dynamic and fun uh, way, way to live. If you can, if you can pull it off. Well, uh, this podcast host just told you that I read Substack. <laughs> I, I'm not reading the major media outlets anymore uh, because I like to get my news as unfiltered as possible um, straight from the source. So that's where I think, I think the media is going that way anyways, frankly. I think people are fed up of all sides of this spectrum of the angle of where stuff's coming from and don't want things slanted anymore. There's like that trustworthy, uh, you know, broadcast host from the 70s and 80s no longer exists and so everybody's now looking at everything that comes out of everyone's mouth with the cocked eye and i don't really know if i believe you uh but anyways chris has been great been really a lot of fun um i hope our listeners enjoy it really pleasure to have you on tmt time i really appreciate it it's great to be here love love talking to you